morning, everyone. How's everyone doing? Good, good. Hopefully you're enjoying this Christmas season and singing these Christmas songs and getting your heart ready for communion this morning. Always enjoy doing that and meeting together and fellowshipping together. You can take out your Bibles and turn to Matthew chapter 1, and also if you could take out uh, your message outline, appreciate that. We're going to continue in our series, and we're third week in our series called The Storyline of Jesus. As I said, if you have your Bibles, Matthew 1. We've been looking at the last few weeks of the genealogy of Jesus. I know that don't sound too exciting, but it's important for you and I to know the Jesus family history because it shows us so much about our own, own lives. See, to know to understand the genealogy of Jesus, we find that in this family line, uh, there have been people, broken people. There have been rebellious people. And today we're going to look at people who have failed, failure, and that God didn't use perfect people. Remember, if God was looking for perfect people, he'd still be looking, right? That none of us are perfect. But God uses the wounded. He uses the broken, those who have been rebellious, those who have, have many failures, people just like us. Every one of us are just the same way. And so we can get much encouragement from the family line of Jesus to understand that God's grace exceeds all of our failures, right? God's grace exceeds all of our brokenness and all of our rebellion, that God's grace exceeds all that. Amen? And we get much enjoyment and understanding of that. Uh, I don't know about you, but I've read the Gospel of Matthew many, many times over the years. And sometimes when I've read it, I've kind of just zipped through those first 17 verses. How about you? Just zip through them. I, I don't know if it's because of the genealogy or just the hard-to-pronounce names, but I just kind of go through it. But when you look at this, so many times I read it, I, I, I zip through it because I don't feel like there's a whole lot of meaning that I can grab from the genealogy of Jesus. So we just skim over it. Uh, but Matthew is writing the gospel. He's putting this genealogy in here for a reason. And the reason is because it means so much to people he's writing to. He's writing to the Jews. And it means so much to them. That the Jews, if they understand their genealogy and the promise that God has given them that's coming to them, through this genealogy, that the one will come and sit on the throne of David forever and ever. So they hold these family lines really tight. They make sure they're really tight. And it's like you see a picture. We're going to have the picture up on here on the screen. Hopefully you can see that from where. Can you see that? It's a Bev Doolittle. The, the forest has eyes. And in that picture, what you see there, you look at the picture, and she paints this picture, but inside the picture, she reveals other things that you just can't see from the surface, right? You've got to look. And when you start looking at the picture, you see other stuff. It really makes the picture come alive. You see the eyes in the mountains. You everyone see that? See the eyes in the hills and stuff like that? That's just like the genealogy of Jesus. When we first look at the list or this, these names, we look, oh, this is kind of boring. Just look at these names. But we start to get really involved and look past the list and the history of these people's lives. This whole picture, this masterpiece of what God has put together here, the artistry of God within this genealogy, really paints the full picture of it. And we really get a glimpse of what God is doing. All through the generations, these three groups of 14 generations in each one, he's really revealing something. Today we're going to look at the third section, the family tree of the genealogy of Jesus. It said that Matthew has broken down three sections, 14 generations each. He does it for a reason. We have seen from the first couple weeks, the, the first section, those 14 generations, those 14 names, how broken Jesus' family is. We looked at the second group last week, and we found out how rebellious Jesus' family is. And this third group, we're going to find out all the failure that's when Jesus' family. And as we look at these three groups, these 14 names in each group, the first group we looked at was kind of looking upward, where it went from Abraham to King David. It looked like an upward rise. Everything was pointing toward the Messiah. 
Then last week we looked at the second group and, you know, uh, all those kings and all those rebellious kings and it just plummeted. And it seemed everything went downhill from Solomon to the Babylonian exile. And this week we're going to look at the third group. And the third group goes from the exile, the Babylonian exile, goes all the way to Jesus. And the big idea that I want us to see this morning, in the family, in the family's failures, God always, always keeps his promise. He always does. And the question we want to ask today as a family is this, how do we respond? How do I respond and how do you respond when failure comes upon us? How do we look up at, at that failure? And this morning, I want to give you three responses, not really responses, but kind of look at it in, in, internally. Three responses to your failure. It is realize that you are under God's curse. Realize that you're under God's judgment. Let's begin reading in verse 12. It says, after the exile to Babylon, Jeconiah. The first realize, realization we need to understand that we're all under God's curse. As we dive back in the family tree, we're started right off the back. We think there's going to be a continuation of this upward movement that things are all going, only going to get better, right? But we soon find out it doesn't. As soon as the name is mentioned, Jeconiah, the people of Israel heard that name, they know that's not good. And we find from Jeconiah described in 1 Chronicles chapter 3, is also described in 2 Kings chapter 24. The Bible says Jeconiah did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. So he wasn't finding favor with God because of his behavior, because of his actions, what we would call because of his sin, he wasn't finding favor with God. As a matter of fact, uh, we see it might seem tragic. The prophet Jeremiah writes this about Jeconiah. He says, God says, I'm going to hurl you to an, into another country where you were not born, and there you shall die, is what he tells them. In judgment, the promised people of Israel were looking at this around and saying, we thought this was the God. We thought this was the one that was going to sit on David's throne. We thought he was the guy. And it didn't come before very long we'd realize he's not the one. And everything came crashing down. Everything comes to a halt. Actually, it actually goes further than this. Listen to what Jeremiah says about uh, Jeconiah, uh, also called Joachim, same person, Jeconiah and Joachim. This is what he says, Jeremiah says, this is what the Lord says. Record this man as if childless, a man who will not prosper in his lifetime. For none of his offspring will prosper. None will sit on the throne of David or rule anymore in Judah. Remember, God said that someone was going to sit on the line of, of David and, and reign forever and ever and ever. And these people hear that, God is saying, no, it's not going to happen. And so these people are hearing that, they must be feeling where everything was going great. They thought everything was going to happen, going to be better. It just stops, stops right here with Jeconiah. Everything just stops, what God is saying. All the promises, it just stops. And they got to get to the point where they said, I don't think the promise that God gave us, he's going to fulfill it. He's going to fulfill that promise about David. I don't think he's going to do it. And they feel this weight. They feel the depravity. They feel the hopelessness. They feel the judgment that they're under right now because he's saying to them, by saying that, he says, you have no future hope. You have no future promise. You have no future legacy. Because of Jeconiah's great wickedness, God rejects him completely. I reject him. And so the curse is spoken, and it's permanent. It cannot be changed. God said, I reject him. He's not going to go back. God's not going to change his mind. And the problem becomes for the people of Israel is their, their hope and their dream. Everything that was supposed to look toward, forward, looking along for someone to sit on David's throne comes crashing down. Now because the line of David has been broken, the curse, God curses this line now because of what Jeconiah has done. And so there's no offspring. 
that's going to sit on the throne of David. They look at this, no offspring's going to get it. The family has failed. There's failure after failure after failure we find in the family. So God said, that's it. Jeconiah, I'm going to not let anyone sit on the throne. So Jeconiah's name here should actually bring something to light for each and every one of us too. Because we're all failures, right? Just not Jeconiah. Every one of us are failures. And the judgment of God is upon us. The curse of God is upon us. It reminds us that we're all under God's curse. And it goes all the way back, not to Jeconiah, it goes all the way back to Adam in the garden when Adam sinned and death came from sin. That's the curse. And we all have that curse upon us. The position in the world that we have, the Bible says, that we're all sinners, right? Every one of us are sinners. And, and because of that, we are separated from God. It's not something we like to hear, but it's true. And because of that, the Scripture reveals over and over, I want to read you a couple passages that are kind of heavy. But this is what God says about the sin in the world. In Romans 1.18, he says, The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of men who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Not a popular statement, but it's true. God doesn't look at sin lightly. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 3, he says, All of us lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature objects of wrath, objects of God's wrath at one time. 2 Peter 2.14, he says, They have eyes full of adultery, insatiable for sin. They entice unsteady souls. They have hearts trained in greed. Accursed children, he says. We're all cursed. And so, simply put, we don't deserve the good things that God has promised. None of us do, do we? We don't deserve God's goodness. We don't deserve his promises. None of us do. And in this moment, the people of Israel are feeling the exact same way. And you and I have failed when it comes to God's standard. Every one of us have. We've fallen short of our standard. To obey him, we sin. So there's separation that is there for all of us. We've been separated from God. But so we look. We long for the Redeemer. We long for the rescue from God to come, right? And Matthew gives us this storyline of Jesus, this genealogy. And the list leads God's people to see this with their own eyes. That you, you and I see all the rebellion, all the failure, all the wickedness in this line of these three groups of 14 generations in each one. But there was hope that was to come. There's hope that was to come. He's showing us. And you and I, with our sin and our separation from God between us and us, we could see that there's hope. And there's a promise that is coming. There's a promise, he says. So the genealogy continues. And we realize that there's failure. And because of the failure, we long to be rescued. We all long to be restored. And we look for restoration. But many times we put our restoration in the wrong thing. And that's our second point. The second response to your failure is recognize your best hero can't redeem you. In our culture today, there's all kind of heroes, right? There's all kind of Marvel movies that are out there. This hero, that hero, they're all going to save us, right? Let, let's read verses 12 through 15. Jeconiah was the father of Shetil. Shetil, the father of Zerubbabel. Zerubbabel, the father of Ibiad. Ibiad, the father of Eliakim. Eliakim, the father of Azor. Azor, the father of Zadok. Zadok, the father of Achim. Achim, the father of Eliad. Eliad, the father of Eleazar. Eleazar, the father of Nathan. Nathan, the father of Jacob. You got three there. So the curse over Jeconiah is there, that there wouldn't be anyone to sit on his throne, right? Anyone wouldn't sit on, on David's throne. But the passage here says that there is one, that he does have one. It says right here in the passage. Shatil is born, then comes Zerubbabel, right? And Zerubbabel comes, the people get excited because they think, this is the one, this might be the Messiah. They're excited about Zerubbabel. But there's a problem that we have to address here. We have to look at this. It's through the genealogy it's, that God continues to reveal 
uh, this bit, a little bit more of this masterpiece, a little bit more of the story. And so God keeps this promise to curse in Jeconiah that he's not going to have anyone sit on the throne from Jeconiah's family. And he also uh, keeps his promise to David. In David's line, someone will, keep, will sit on that throne. So how does he do this? Well, if you look at 1 Chronicles chapter 3, verse 19, the key, Zerubbabel isn't listed as Shetil's son. He's the son of Shetil's brother, Pedadiah. So actually, Zerubbabel is technically Shetil's nephew. He doesn't come from Jeconiah. So he, he, he doesn't come from that line. So let me explain. There, there's a elaborate marriage law that's found in Deuteronomy 25. You heard me say this before, that if a man dies childless and he's married and he doesn't have any children, his nearest relative could marry his wife, could marry and produce children that would continue on the family line. That's what happened here. So Shatil's family line continues, so David's family line could continue because God had to keep his promise to David, the Davidic covenant. So he keeps his promise to David. The problem here, the hero of the story, Zerubbabel, is not really the hero. Everybody kind of looked at him, oh, look at this, Zerubbabel comes, and he was a great man, but he's not the hero. Did you notice the line didn't end with Jeconiah or Shatil or Zerubbabel? There's actually nine more names that come into the scene in verses 13 through 15. We see that. And they thought everything was going to get better. It can only get better after Jeconiah, right? And they had, the hero had come. The problem was, the hero that they had in that moment that they clung to, they were clinging to the hero, they were clinging to these men, wasn't the Messiah, he wasn't the one. They had their own problems, too. So how many of us, we see the failure today, we see the, our sin, we see the difficulties of life, and Jeconiah, as Jeconiah did, as the people of Israel did, because the coming Messiah wasn't there, we try to insert someone else in that place. We try to cling to someone else, and they don't deliver for us, and they don't satisfy us, they don't fulfill us, do they? When you think about the Christmas season, how many people are trying to fill the season with things, events, places, and people? And what happens, they go to as many events as they can, they go to as many as places as they can, they invite many as people over as they can, they buy as many as gifts as they can. So all the weights, all the failure, all the difficulties of life, and everything else about the season can just kind of go away. And if I do all these things, maybe somehow through all this difficulty, I can only feel better. But if any of you have tried that, you find that it doesn't, does it? doesn't satisfy. doesn't make you feel better. In the third section, in those nine names in verses 13 through 15, they lead up to Jacob. The people turned up empty. These are not the ones. Even though Zerubbabel was the greatest of these, he wasn't the one. He wasn't the one who's going to fulfill the promise. And maybe that's what you've tried. You said, I've tried everything. I've tried to fill up, you know, put all the pieces together, to cling to all kinds of different things to get me there that will satisfy me. And yet it doesn't reform. It doesn't live up to the promise, and it doesn't satisfy. It doesn't fulfill us. And sometimes we do that with politics. There's a lot, a lot talking about the political parties. And we'll see someone in running for office, and we'll say, boy, if that person could only get in, and then they get elected, and they get in, and nothing changes, right? Nothing changes. We look for the president. Next year at this time, we either have a new president or have the same president. Well, I want something to change. And we look, boy, if that new president could get in, if he or she could just get in, everything would change. Everything is only going to get better, right? But we'll find out. I can tell you that it does. Hardly anything changes. We're always looking for a savior. We're always looking for someone to save us from something. We do that in our society. It's built in us that we're looking for someone to do something, to save us, to do this. And none of these things will ever, ever satisfy. None of these people, none of these heroes that we look, will never, ever satisfy us. They can't. 
You and I, when we become aware of the condition, the curse, the judgment that we're under, we start to look for a hero. We start seeing those heroes out there. They don't add up. They can't meet our needs. They can't satisfy. And it points to us to a place, to only one thing, to only one person, and it's only Jesus. Only he will do. Only he will satisfy. And God fulfills his promises through Jesus. His promises are all fulfilled through him. That's what he's pointing to. That's why he gives us this genealogy, that everything points to Jesus. And there's no one after him. There's no one after him coming in line that's going to do any better. It's Jesus. He's the hero. He's the one. And you and I have the opportunity not only recognize this, to look at this, but rightly respond to God in the moment. That the millions of things that you and I could cling to, and we do, it is a believer in Christ, we cling to all kinds of things. But we have the opportunity to cling to the one that will satisfy. That will satisfy you and fix your brokenness and fix your rebellion and fix your sin and fix all the other things that we have. And the only one that can do that is Jesus. He's the only one. That's what it's pointing to. It's Jesus. And so we have the opportunity. Our third response to your failure is rejoice in God's fulfilled promise for you, which is Jesus. So rejoice in God's fulfilled promise. Let's read verse 16 and 17. And it says, Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom was born Jesus, who is called the Christ. Thus there were 14 generations in all from Abraham to David, 14 from David to the exile in Babylon, and 14 from the exile to the Christ. It gives us that there. We come to the conclusion of the family tree of Jesus right here. A person named Jesus, through a man named Jacob, who was the father of a man named Joseph, who was married to a woman named Mary. But the family tree jumps here. It doesn't call Joseph the father of Jesus, but states that Jesus was born of Mary. Changes it right there. And we see from the family line, we've been looking at the genealogy of Jesus. We've seen the genealogy pass from man to man to man to man until it comes to Jesus on the scene, and it changes right here. It changes. We have seen Mary listed. Matthew did this intentionally so you and I would notice this because he wants to paint the picture that God's promise is coming true, that the promise that he made to David and Abraham are coming true. With the genealogy here establishes Joseph as the father, the legal father, but he also points to the divine work of God here, the, the divine miraculous virgin birth to Mary from which Jesus came forth, he's saying, in which he was born right here. The divine miracle, that's how Jesus came. That Jesus is the promise. Jesus is the anointed one that the Bible talks about. He's the Messiah. That's the one. It all points to him. This whole Bible, everything that we read in it is pointing to Jesus. All the Old Testament is pointing to him. And everything in the Old Testament is pointing back to what Jesus taught. Everything is about him in this Bible. Revealing him is to come. And that's what this genealogy is supposed to point to. It's Jesus. It's all delivered. We will look at the Abrahamic covenant that God promised Abraham that someone will come from your seed, and all the nations of the world will be blessed. That's fulfilled in Jesus. The Davidic covenant, where he told David, someone will come from your seed, it will reign on your throne forever and ever, ever. That comes through Jesus. He fulfills all of those. See, God does, not, does nothing haphazard or half-hearted, but everything with intricate design, everything. And I love the design of this because when we look at it, because of all the wickedness, and all the failure that we see, we can see for ourselves how we can have this promise, too, that he's given to us. He's given us a promise. And you know so much as we spend, we look in our film family lines, and I know many of you look down at your family trees, and we look back to see who was great. 
we want to look back at our family trees and see what we can cheer about. But many times we look at our family trees as we look back, it's not what we thought it would be, right? It's not what we thought it was going to be in those family lines and we look back. So we expected when we look back that everyone was going to be good, everyone's going to be great, it's going to be perfect, loving, beautiful, and all that, right? And we didn't find that in Jesus' family line either, did we? What we find in Jesus' family line was failure and brokenness and rebellion. And we found those kings who sinned one right after another, all those rebellious kings, until it got to the one, to that very last name, Jesus, the Redeemer and Rescue, who fulfills the promise. There's only one. All these other people had a chance to do it, but none of them could do it. It was only Jesus that could fulfill the promise. And maybe you couldn't say this before, but hopefully you can say it now after these three weeks. I love the family tree and genealogy of Jesus because it makes me see the promise that God has for me. And that's what it's supposed to do. When you read those 17 verses, you're supposed to look at that and say, look at the promise that God brought and how it got here. It just didn't, he just didn't send Jesus, but look what it took. When the whole family line kind of went dark, every one of them, with unknown names of people who came and are forgotten, and all the things they were supposed to live up to, but none of them did. They all failed, every one of them. And suddenly, Jesus appears on the scene, the one who God sent, who was sent from God to the Father to redeem you and I. It's only Jesus. None of the others would do. Only Jesus. Let's read verse 17 again. It says, there, Thus there were 14 generations of all, from Abraham to David, 14 from David to the exile in Babylon, and 14 from the exile to the Christ. When you and I kind of look at your family albums and you see people, you open them up and you see people that you love, you say, boy, I really love them. Then you see some people probably you don't like, and maybe some that didn't treat you very, very well. But you all came from that. You came from that, right? It all led to you. All those pictures that you look at led to you, right? And the genealogy of Jesus all leads us to a place as well. That's what it's trying to do. As God chose to work through a not-so-perfect people line, the family line of Jesus, he said, there's one, and there's only one that is consistent person for you to cling to. There's only one in that line, and it's Jesus. He's the only hero. There's no other heroes out there, guys. There's only one. God gave us a hero, and it's Jesus. He's the only hero. He's the hero of the story. He's the hero of the Bible. He's our hero. And it's the only one we should talk about. Our hero is Jesus. So today help you as you look at the, the genealogy, how God weaved this masterpiece, and it is. He weaved this together for us. Through generation after generation, we look at this. He revealed to us these intricacies of this masterpiece that he laid down that actually mattered. Every one of those names matter. He didn't just throw, let's throw that one in there, throw that one there. Every one of those names actually matter. God was revealing to us failure and rebellion and brokenness and all kinds of things that, that they actually matter, that the things that were hidden that you and I just breeze by because we don't think they mean anything. Actually, God's perfect plan was to introduce the coming king. That's the way God chose to introduce him. He's going to come this way. And then when the fullness of the story was revealed, through the most unlikely of people, through that family line as we looked through, not what we expected it would become, who were all sinners. Every one of them were sinners. Broken people who had failed again and again. The one promise, the promise of the Messiah, who would change everything. And Jesus did. He changed everything. So we have to look at this. Does God keep his promises? Yes, absolutely. Are the promises still true today? Yes, absolutely. Is the reason that God sent his son 2,000 years ago still the same for today, to die for our sins? Yes, absolutely. And when we understand that, when you and I understand those truths, our lives are changed. 
we become alive uh, to God from the inside out, right? Our memory verse for this week, Galatians chapter 4, verse 4 through 5 says this. Remember, when the time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born of the law, to redeem those under the law that we might receive the full rights of sons. So at just the right time, when the time had fully come, at the perfect time of God, he sent forth his son, born of a woman, the Bible says. The baby was born in a manger named Emmanuel, which means God with us. That's what Jesus, God was with us. He walked on this earth with us. Fulfill the promise to you and I. It's Jesus. Jesus didn't have any physical offspring. We talked about that a couple weeks ago. But all who put their faith and trust in Jesus, we are his spiritual offspring. Amen? We are his spiritual offspring. So Jesus has many offspring. And if you put your faith and trust in him, you are that spiritual offspring of Jesus. So today, if you don't know Jesus, if you never put your faith and trust in him, today rest in the, the promised one. The promise who comes to rescue, the promise of Jesus, the rescue and the redeemer, the one who heals of everything that's broken in our lives. He makes it like new, the Bible says. He can make uh, you into a perfect masterpiece. That's what he wants to do in your life. I love the passage in Ephesians 2.10 where it says, We are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works. That workmanship can be translated, We are God's masterpiece, created in Christ Jesus to do not my good works or your good works, his good works. God wants to make you into a masterpiece. That's what his plan for you and I, a masterpiece. So you know Christ, he's forming and shaping you into a masterpiece, unlike anything else in all creation. You are unique. Do you realize that you're a masterpiece? But if you don't know Jesus Christ, you can't be made in a masterpiece until you come and put your faith and trust in him. And if you don't know Jesus yet, let me encourage you to come today and realize we're all sinners. Everyone in this room is sinners. I'm a sinner. We're all sinners. And we're separated from God. There's no way you and I can fix our problems. We're separated. And so God sent his son, Jesus, to come and to live the perfect life, and he did. And then he went to the cross, and God placed all your sins, all those things that separate you from God, all the sins of the world upon Jesus. And Jesus died on the cross for you. He was your substitute. He took your place. That's God's grace. Jesus took your place. And now we have to respond to him. We do that by faith, by simply coming and saying, God, I know I'm a sinner. And I know Jesus Christ died on the cross for my sins. And today I put my faith and trust in Jesus. If you've never done that, please do that today. That decides where you will spend eternity. After this life, where are you going to go? It's with Jesus if you know him, or apart from him if you've never put your faith in him. Or if you ignore him, apart from him for eternity. For eternity. We're talking this life for I don't know how long you might live. 100 years, let's say, you live. It's a very short time compared to eternity, right? This life will determine where you will spend eternity. What will determine is what you do with Jesus. Accept him today. If you have questions about that, please see me after the service. It's the most important uh, question you need to answer. What are you going to do with Jesus? Accept him. Put your faith and trust in him. What a great time for us to take communion, right? To go right into a communion service. To realize and remember, what we have in Jesus, no one else could give us. There's no one else on that list. No one else could give us what we have. Forgiveness of sin. A relationship with God the Father, eternal life, an eternal home with Jesus. Amen. And the list goes on and on. The list goes on and on. So we praise God. So today as we take communion, as always, we remember Jesus. He came so that he might rescue an eye from our sins. He came that he might rescue an eye from our bondage, our bondage in sin. We were enslaved to it. You may not have realized you and I were enslaved to it until we came to Christ. And he came to give us life. But not just life, abundant life here on this earth, but
but not just abundant life here on this earth. He came to give us eternal life. Amen? That we might be with him forever and ever and ever. And so, if you know Jesus Christ, you say, we, we invite you to partake with us. But as we take the elements this morning, as one of the three tables, remember as we take the cracker, the wafer, that it reminds us that Jesus says, this is my body which is broken for you. As we take the cup, it reminds us that Jesus saying to us, this is my blood that I shed on the cross for you. Whenever you drink this, do this in remembrance of me. And every time you and I take communion, we are proclaiming the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Amen. We're proclaiming that to the world to say we believe that Jesus died on the cross for our sins. We believe that he was buried, and we believe that he was raised from the dead. And he conquered sin. He conquered death, and he conquered the enemy, Satan. Amen. We believe that. So when we take communion, let's proclaim that about Jesus. If you know Jesus as your Savior, please join us as we take communion. Uh, ask, we're not going to pass it out, but after I get done praying, come up and take the elements. Two cups, one on top of the other, and then take them back to your seats, and we will take them together. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Lord, we come and we praise you. Lord, as we look at the list on that genealogy, Lord, uh, there were some great men that were not some so great men. There were some great women, but not so great women. But there's only one that deserves our praise. There's only one on that list that deserves our full attention. There's only one on that list that deserves our worship. There's only one on that list that deserves our allegiance. There's only one that gave us a promise that could keep us. There's only one that's eternal. There's only one that fulfills the Abrahamic covenant, the Davidic covenant, fulfills and satisfies the justice and holiness of God. There's only one. And it's you, Jesus. It's you. You're the only one. You're the promise. Lord, you're our hero. May we always look at you as our hero. May we always not look to something else to rescue us. You're a rescuer. You're a redeemer. You're the one who rescues. You're the one who loves us. You're the one who died for us. So Lord, as we take communion this morning, Lord, let us remember all that you did for us. Let us remember your name was the last name on that list to remind us who you are. That the list stops there. There is no one else to look forward to. You are the one. And that's what Matthew was showing us. You're the one. And so, Lord, we come this morning to remember you, that you came and you lived a perfect life. You did all the right things. You did everything. You pleased God as a father in every way of your life. And then you went to the cross, and you died on the cross for our sins, the things that we did wrong, the sins against God. You took them upon yourself. And God, that's your grace died for them. You are substitute. We praise you for that. And then, Lord, you were buried, and then you rose from the dead. You conquered sin, Satan, and death. We're so praised for that. You did that for us. You did it for us. So we don't have to fear the grave. We know the grave can't hold us because it couldn't hold you. And then, Lord, we will be with you absent your body, present with the Lord. So, Lord, we have all the hope of eternity in you. You're our promise. You're a whole promise that our whole hope is in one person. Only you, Jesus. And you fulfilled the promise. And what you promised, you will carry it through because you're the only one that is eternal. So we come to you and we're saying, remembering you this morning, as we take the communion, as we take the elements, we want to bring glory to you. We want to remember you. Say thank you. We say thank you. And have hearts that are grateful, that are thankful for all that you did for us. It's all by your grace that it was a free gift to us. All we have to see is put our faith and trust in you. What an amazing Savior. What a 
fulfillment of all the promises of Scripture being found in Jesus. We're so thankful for you. So, Lord, as we take communion this morning, let each one of our hearts, Lord, remember you. And, Lord, if we have any sin in our hearts and minds, convict us of that sin that we might confess it and get right with you. But may you be glorified as we take communion this morning. Draw us closer to you this morning, Lord. Help our minds to be a clear picture of Jesus and all that this season means about Jesus. He's the reason for the season. He's the one. He's the gift. He's our hero. So, Lord, may you be glorified as we take this. And, Lord, we ask this in Jesus' name.